back of your bulletin, there is a list of the small groups for this fall. And boy, if when it comes down to us wanting to be about who we are, um, when it comes down to us wanting to live under the authority of God's Word, wanting to apply the truth to daily life, wanting to walk in prayerful dependence as a body, wanting to put the ministry into the hands of the body of harvest, and wanting to do all of this in the context of personal relationships, I want to tell you, small groups are important to that. And they allow us uniquely as a body to be who we are. And so I want to tell you for you if those aspects of, man, I just, I need more help applying scripture to my daily life. I need to grow in my prayerful dependence on the Lord. I need to really see where there are, see how I can be a part of the ministry of the body. I need to grow in personal relationships within this body. And you're not in a part of a small group. I would strongly encourage you to be so because that is a huge part, that is a huge way that we try to hammer those home more in our lives. Again, they, they allow us to be better at being who we are as a body, for sure. Um, you know, for that reason, Kelly and I are going to be in a small group this year. And, um, and also, you know, just for the sake of stopping and saying, hey, we need this. And, uh, and so we're excited for that as well. There's something else I had on my mind, and it's escaped me, so that's all right. I think I'm going to have a lot of that this morning. So, as I mentioned, in the back of your bulletin is our list of small groups, and the sign-up sheets are in the back there. And, uh, oh, I know what it was. Uh, one other thing that you can be looking for this fall is um, that we'll be having some kind of town hall information meetings. Um, myself and the elders, uh, for you as a body, for us to start discussing more of um, the, the short-term vision for us as a body. And one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to make each of the small groups one of those kind of town hall meetings. And so I and some of the elders will, will be at each of the small groups at some point during this fall to, uh, to lay out and to discuss and to um, start batting around as a church specifics of the um, vision that we believe that, that the Lord uh, has for us in the next three to five years. And when that takes place, in the case that you're not in a small group, we'll put out sheets in the back saying this is where those are going to be taking place, and then you can sign up to let that group leader know, oh, I'm going to be there, so you know, we'll make them like dessert get-togethers 
and stuff. So that's uh, in the works and in the plan as well. But what's in the plan right now is for us to hear from God's word. So let's bow our heads together. Lord, we uh, are dependent on you. We need your truth. We need um, your word. We need it to, to run headlong into our lives and to teach us. And we need your Holy Spirit to teach us through your word. Lord, we pray that you would impact us this morning greatly from the time that we spend here in your word. And, and um, Lord, we pray that you would work it into us uh, more than anything. And so, Lord, I, I just lift these requests up to you. I lift up the teachers to you. And as they are uh, looking at your word with the kids together, and Lord, we pray that um, this would not be done without uh, your word having an impact on our lives, you working yourself into our lives uh, through this time that we spend. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking here and we're coming to the end of um, one chapters 1 through 4 of on gospel mission with the God-man. And if I can get this to, am I moving now? Is that me? Yeah, okay, there we go. <laughs> on gospel mission with the God-man is what we've been looking at in these first four chapters of the book of the Gospel of John. And we've seen, in a lot of ways, Jesus kind of um, doing some traveling, if you will, and we'll touch on what it seems like John's purpose was for sharing these different contexts in which Jesus was having specific conversations with specific people guided by the truth of the Gospel. I was speaking recently with someone about the idea of us being on gospel mission and this idea of that we foresee that if we move in the direction that God wants us to move in of exalting him and equipping believers and extending the kingdom and if we do this in the way that he's wired us to do it, we foresee that we will be a body of believers on gospel mission in our daily lives in a short time. Um, and, and this person was sharing how they're starting to get an idea of what is meant by being on gospel mission. It's about living out the gospel in our daily lives. It's about living by the gospel in our daily lives. It's about living as Jesus lived. It's about following Jesus and being about what he is about and a part of what he is doing. It's really about being great commission Christians, if you will. Being on gospel mission is all also about increasing our expectations of what God can do in our daily lives and with us in our daily lives. And that's what we're looking at this morning, that Jesus exceeds all expectations. It's what we see play out at the end of chapter four here. We serve a God who can do 
far above and beyond all that we can ask or think, we're told in the scriptures. This morning, we're going to read about people who were missing what was right under their noses. It wasn't a part of their expectations for Jesus to be who he is. We'll see a crowd who's not tracking with who Jesus is. We'll also learn about a man who was changed forever because of God's grace that was shown on him. And he wasn't expecting it. And to be honest, we get introduced the next six chapters of the Gospel of John in this way. A few people who see the truth of Jesus while everyone else is missing the point. That's basically chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 of the Gospel of John. A few people who see Jesus for who he is and a crowd of people that are missing the point. Let's look at our verses that we're looking at this morning just as a overview real quickly reading these together after two days he departed for Galilee it says if you remember these two days were spent in Samaria as we read about it earlier in chapter four and John gives us one of these commentaries here for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown so when he came to Galilee the Galileans welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And so he came again, right, we said that. Um, And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did, when he had come from Judea to Galilee. I was on a short trip to the grocery store recently. I was, I was on a mission. This, was a mission to, this mission was to find the, uh, the pork chops at County Market that were $1.79 a pound. As it often happens for husbands that are looking for something, they can't find it right? Uh, Eventually, in those situations, I have to ask my wife to come and help me look for something, only to see that it's uh, right under my nose. Oh, Jay, this light's on now. (laughs) 
we husbands don't understand this until we have sons. You know, for me, I was at the grocery store. Can I turn this off? Is it going to fuzz? We've been experiencing with, experimenting with some rechargeable batteries for the headset here, and they haven't been working out too well. But. So I was in County Market looking for these $1.79 pork chops, looked from one end of the pork to the other, looked around for this sign, you know, maybe I'll find, see $1.79 somewhere, asked a stock guy to help me, and I think the problem was that he was also a guy. Um, neither he nor I could find it. So, of course, the cashier, um, I, I'm just mentioning as I'm talking, yeah, I couldn't find those pork chops, you know, and she's like, well, let's go back and look. Okay. She was there for like one second. Seriously, there's the sign right there. There's the pork chops right where I had been looking. Like I said, I don't think we as men understand this until we have sons. That I think it's just that my gender can testify at how easy it is to miss the very thing that we're looking for, even though it's right there under our noses. The Galileans were not going to see Jesus for who he is, even though he was right there in front of them. This brings us to this first idea that we find in our passage, and that is the unrecognized Savior of all. We read here that when Jesus came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast, it says. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. Now, the area of Galilee in general is Jesus' home turf, if you will. If you look here on this map, um, you can see here Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. You can see here Canaan, Cana, which is, uh, we read about in chapter 2, where he, uh, the, the wedding at Cana, where Jesus made the water into wine. Now over here is the Capernaum that is just talked about. It's over here on the shores of Lake Galilee. But if you see the whole blue area here is the area of Galilee. Okay. So the area itself is kind of Jesus' home turf. From, from looking at our map, we can see the pro proximity of these, these, uh, these cities. Uh, so the statement made about Je the, a prophet and his hometown, Jesus and his hometown, is true for all of Galilee, as well as it was for Judea, as we read about of Jesus in, um, in chapter, well, I, I don't remember the chapter anyways. So the welcome that Jesus receives from his countrymen here is not the type that would make his heart glad. Unfortunately, it's the same sort of welcome that he received from those who were in Jerusalem. Remember back in chapter 2? 
After cleansing the temple during the Passover, we read in John 2, verses 23 through 25, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Recall that? So I want you to notice about these countrymen of Jesus, these men, these people of Galilee. Notice that we know it was the very same sort of welcome that he received in Jerusalem Some of these people that are described in this passage, they were actually there seeing Jesus perform the signs in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. We're told that in the passage. It says, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. They had faith, this same sort of faith in Jesus as a miracle worker. And this was the same faith faith as Nicodemus, that he showed when Jesus told him, unless you are born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. These Galileans probably have a, a little more twisted view, maybe, of their, of their hometown hero here. Um, in 2006, when the Colts won Super Bowl 41, I would bet that there was a lot of fans down at the airport when they flew in from Miami. Uh, I would imagine maybe some of you here were there. Uh, Indiana's team was the best and brought significance then to Indiana in the process, right? I think this is why Jesus is being initially welcomed in Galilee and wherever he went in that region. You can see how they might have viewed him as not only a miracle worker, but, but also with the possibility of putting Galilee back on the map, putting Nazareth back on the map, which was just a, a small town of about 800 to 1,000 people at the end of a donkey path. He certainly was not recognized as being the Savior of all. What has struck me in my study of John is how much John focuses on how Jesus was unrecognized during his ministry, as I've mentioned. The Apostle Paul describes the deadness of the heart of man toward his Savior with these terms. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, he writes, In their case, the the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And I believe that describes spiritually the condition that these Galileans were in when they are unable to recognize the Savior of the world for who he is. Even though the Messiah or the Savior of the world is standing before them, they don't recognize him. It really shouldn't surprise us, though, that Jesus was unrecognized by his own people, the Jews. John warned us that much of his gospel was going to be about this. He wrote in chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, he writes, 
He being Jesus, speaking of Jesus, was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And then he goes on to say, he came to his own, being the Jews, and his own people did not receive him. So John for, gave us some foreshadow that this is what's going on in all of these instances that I share with you in my gospel. But John also gave us a heads up that there would be those who receive him as Savior. He continues in verses 12 through 13. But to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And John gives us an example this morning of one who does, does receive Jesus as the God-man Savior. But he was, he was an unlikely person of interest, if you will. And we read about him here in verses 46 through 47. It says, So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. This is that town on the, the shores of Lake Galilee. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, in my mind, this nobleman from Capernaum was an unlikely person of interest in two ways. First of all, this man was an unlikely person of interest. He was unlikely to have interest in Jesus as Savior of the world. First, because he was a Gentile Roman royal official. The term here is used to trans translate it in English as official is the term used for uh, noblemen of Herod Antipas. How do I say this? Herod Antipas had noblemen in his court, and this was the term that was used to describe this official. He was likely an official in Herod's court, and, and Herod was, was being Jewish, but he was a, in a Roman position. It's kind of an awkward thing, and this guy would have been a Gentile royal official in Herod's court. Of all the people who were attracted to Jesus in Galilee, this wealthy aristocrat would be the furthest one from furthest from looking for the Messiah at all, let alone in the person of Jesus. I've mentioned before that it seems as if John is showing for his readers how Jesus' ministry is a model for missions. You can read in Acts 1.8 how Jesus told his disciples that they would be his witnesses from Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we've seen in John 3 through 4 just how Jesus is on gospel mission, and he's sharing himself first with a Jew named Nicodemus, and then a Samaritan woman by a well, and then here with a Gentile. And it seems as if John is, is picking out instances in this early ministry of Jesus to show his extension of his gospel from Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. 
But this man would have been an unlikely person to have interest in Jesus. And, and if I can, if I can um, go somewhere else with this for a second here, I find something fascinating. Is, and, and you can see this very easily using a harmony of the Gospels in, in studying Scripture or something like that. But as I was... Um, Studying the next thing that happens chronologically here in Galilee is Jesus. Well, he might have gone somewhere else in between here, but the next thing we're told about is in Luke 4. And you can turn there if you want. Um, In Luke 4, Jesus is in Nazareth, his hometown, and he's in the synagogue. And as was customary, they asked him if he wanted to read um, from. Um, the scriptures which would have been the Old Testament and he picks out a passage from Isaiah that is foretelling the coming of the Messiah and you can see this it begins in Luke 4 verse 16 and just to explain for time's sake, he, so he reads this passage that is clearly to the Jews describing the coming of the Messiah, and then he closes Isaiah and he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing today. And the people that knew him growing up and stuff are looking around at each other and saying, isn't this Joseph's son? You know, and he's claiming this. But what's interesting to me is that Jesus, they're starting to, at some point, they get really ticked because they try to stone him, okay? And and that's where it gets to, I'm sorry, they try to throw him off a cliff. In verse 29, you can see that. Um, But between his making that statement and them getting there, first, he he claims messiahship. They're like, who is this guy? And, And... um, and then he says, um, he tells them, you know, you're going to say, physician, heal yourself. What you've done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Truly I say to you, and he makes this same statement, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, and then notice where he goes here. He starts talking about God's heart for the Gentiles, even while there's needs in Israel. He says in verse 24, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Verse 25, But in truth, I tell you, there were many windows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow, a Gentile. And there was a many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, a Gentile, in Syria, the Syrian. When they heard these things in the synagogue, they were filled with wrath. And that's when they tried to throw him off the cliff. When he says to them, there was plenty of widows, but Elijah was sent to a Gentile. There was plenty of lepers in Israel, but Elisha went to Naaman, the Syrian. And, and what I think he wanted to say, probably at this moment, I don't want to say that, would have been interesting for him to say and, and say, and I was just over in Cana, and I was surrounded by Jews, and I healed a Gentile nobleman's son. 
So that's the atmosphere of what's going on here. This guy, this Gentile nobleman in Cana, is the last person that anybody would have expected to get Jesus' attention on that day, let alone those other Galileans that he was surrounded by. Now I'm going to have to pick it up. Um, as it leads my, the second reason why he's an unlikely person of interest is not he's unlikely to be interested in Jesus as the Messiah, but he's also an unlikely person for Jesus to be interested in because he too is only seeking a miracle, right? He was looking to see if the man who made water into wine who could make his sick child well. And I realize this is a just cause that he has, but this man didn't see Jesus for who he truly was. In other words, it's not that he stood out to Jesus as being someone who's worthy of his attention. Okay? Yes, he trekked uphill 14 miles to Cana, hoping that a miracle worker could come down and heal his son. But we're not told here that Jesus recognized his efforts and decided to give him a hearing. It's not like Jesus looked out over the crowd and said, So tell me, who came from the furthest distance this morning? You know? Oh, you, sir, you're going to get a miracle today. You know, because you worked really hard for it. That's not what's going on here. No, Jesus' attention was just as much an act of grace for that man as it would have been for anyone in Cana. It's the same for us, for any of us who receive Christ as our Savior. There was nothing in us that God saw that made him more inclined to save us than someone else. God is very intentional about making this point throughout the scriptures, like in Romans 5, 6 through 8, where we're told, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But what's implied there is we're neither of those. We're not righteous or good. And that's why he says, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This point is throughout the scriptures that God gets his glory kicks most from showing his grace on people that deserve it none whatsoever. <clears throat> this Gentile royal official from Capernaum was, was, it wasn't anything special. In fact, uh, the people around him never would have suspected that he would have received what he did. And here's the deal, they didn't know it. That's what's interesting too. This was a private miracle. So also, we're, we also were nothing close to being worthy of Jesus especially not him dying in our place for the penalty of our sins. And we could never do enough of anything in order to make us worthy of it either. As it seems customary, Jesus appears to throw out a hurdle in front of this man for him to jump over. 
And that brings us to the idea that this underestimating idea of power that this man has. So, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus' statement here is not just spoken. It, it is spoken to this man of Capernaum. But John tells us uh, also that Jesus' statement is for everybody there because he says it in the plural when he says, unless you, plural, see signs and wonders, you will not believe. In other words, if the official English language had more down-home sense here, it would be, we would be reading this, unless y'all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I don't know if the crowd was kind of leaning in to see what Jesus would do at this moment. They certainly weren't expecting him to give this man a hearing or to heal his son, as we've been saying. The point is that Jesus' statement was just as much for the crowd as it was for this man. And, and as we see, it's a customary thing uh, through the Old Testament. We brought this up with Mary's conversation with Jesus in Cana earlier uh, at the wedding feast that of Jesus' response of, what, what does this have to do with you and me? You know, when Mary makes request of Jesus, that, that it was kind of a customary thing for, for there to be uh, kind of a test of interest, if you will, as well. But the man is undeterred as he, he asks Jesus, please come down. It isn't like what I kind of thought before I studied this was that Jesus was like on a stage or something. And the man's like, come down, come down. But what he's talking about here is, is elevation. Just as whenever Jerusalem is talked about, it says, let's go up to Jerusalem. Um, we think that's odd when we see on a map that they're going to go south because we automatically think that's down. But that's our custom. Their custom was to talk in terms of elevation. And Jerusalem was the highest point around there, so they'd always come up to Jerusalem. And so what's going on is, a sea, is Capernaum is lower in elevation, being down near Galilee. So that's why the man is saying, come down. Come down to my son. In the same way, um, he's, he is limiting he, he's showing his limited expectations of Jesus' ability he, by saying, come with me to Capernaum. Come to where I live. Come be next to my son. Come down with me. Uh, in fact, the verb tense here is literally translated, come down at once, showing his desperation. In his thinking, Jesus would have to make the half-day trip with him, which would require staying overnight along the way. They don't have time to spare. It doesn't occur to him the power that, that resides within the God-man's grasp because he's not thinking of this man for who he is as the God-man. Everyone else present is the same way. He doesn't know that this is the gospel, the God-man on gospel mission. Jesus being the God-man means that he doesn't have to be near the boy 
in order for him to be healed. God is omnipresent. And if the Father had allowed, would allow that, that moment for Jesus to use his ability in that way, he could be next to the man's boy and next to the man at the same time. That's what omnipresent means. God is all-powerful. And if God, the Father, if it was in, within his will to allow God the Son to use his power in this way, Jesus could heal every person from Cana to Capernaum at once. God is all-knowing, eternal, and set apart from his creation. That means that Jesus could have known and planned for this illness to be used for his glory before mankind even existed. This is like a person making a a mistake of thinking an Indy car is a go-kart. And we underestimate the God-man all the time. We underestimate the God-man when we think that our circumstances are somehow outside of his plan or outside of his power. We underestimate the God-man when we think that our neighbors are too lost to be reached with his gospel. We underestimate the God-man when we think that our sinful actions are somehow outside of the power and effectiveness of his sacrifice. His sovereignty, his power, his, his reach, and his grace could never be overstated. The next thing that John shines his light on is the undeniable response to grace. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And then it simply says the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. The first thing that I want to point out here is the grace of this moment, okay? Jesus healed this man's son before the man did anything but ask him to do so. And with that, the man greatly underestimated Jesus' power to heal from any distance. You know, meaning it's not like the man was acknowledging who Jesus was. Remember, he was like, come with me. And, and he was un- it wasn't like he, he was recognizing Jesus for who he was. But yet Jesus healed his man as an act, of, healed his son as an act of grace. I've read of people who want to twist this moment of grace from our passage. There's some who want to say that Jesus saw the faith of this man in this moment and responded to it. There's others that want to say that the man had a test before him. Is he going to believe and go? And that somehow Jesus would have revoked the healing if he hadn't obeyed. But this is bunk. Jesus said, your son will live. Go, your son will live. Before the man responded in any way. In fact, I I picture the man kind of caught off guard. He doesn't mention, it doesn't mention him saying another word to Jesus here. As if he just sort of walks away dumbfounded. 
A reason for this, for his being dumbfounded would be the power that it would take to produce such a miracle, as we mentioned. And with it coming without any payment or showing of worthiness for it. It would just point out all the more the grace of the moment. In other words, the guy's sitting there going, come on, come on. And the guy's like, okay, it's done. You know, can you imagine what runs through his mind there? It's done, but also, who the heck was I just talking to? John is so simple here with his description of Jesus and this man in verse 50. That's why, part of why I think his simplicity makes it undeniable what happens here. I think that John wants us to see the response that Jesus is worthy of. Jesus said to him, go. It says, the man went on his way. So the first aspect that we should notice here is that Jesus commands the man to, with the imperative, which is the case the tense of, um, or the, of command, go. He commands him, go. And guess what we see? He went. Secondly, Jesus has simply said, your son will live. Which is actually, your son is living. But, but we'll get to that in a little bit here. But, but what does the man do? He believes the word that Jesus spoke. He believed that his son had been healed. He hasn't believed on Jesus as the God-man. We'll see that happen. <clears throat> but he's believed that Jesus has done what he said he has done. Robertson McQuilkin, who was the president of uh, CIU where I went to, to um, school. He said something in a chapel message one time that stuck with me. He said, following Christ in some ways is like holding on to a rope and moving forward with two hands. And on each hand, there's five fingers. On one hand is T-R-U-S-T, trust. And on the other hand is Y-I-E-L-D, yield. And it's in that, that process of trust and obey, trust and yield, trust and yield. And that's the process that we see happen here, trust and obey. Francis Chan shares an example of how we think that what God tells us to do isn't really meant to be obeyed. And I love this example. I'll share it with you. Um, so, so this comes from Francis Chan. It says, um, if I were to tell my daughter, go clean your room. I'm not expecting her to come back, you know, an hour later and say, Dad, um, I want you to know I memorized what you said. You said, go clean your room. Aren't you impressed? 
And in fact, tonight and every, every Monday night from 7 to 9, my friends and I are going to gather together here and we're going to talk about what does it mean? What does it look like? We're going to look at it in Greek. What does it look like that we're to go clean our rooms? We, we would think that's ridiculous, right? But that's what we do with God's words so many times. We think somehow scripture memory is important. Studying God's word is important. Getting together with people and discussing God's word is important. But to not do it is just as ridiculous. You know, that's why as we talk about small groups, as, um, you know, we've been meeting together, small group leaders, and we talk about this, we talk about how important small groups are to what we value as a body, applying God's word to daily life. It's not about sitting around and philosophizing. It's not about um, just uh, getting a different perspective and things like that. It's about how can we get this into our daily life. Um, <clears throat> being on gospel mission in our daily lives is about taking Jesus seriously enough to obey him in our daily lives. And we screw up on this all the time, okay? That's part of why being on gospel mission in our daily lives is about embracing forgiveness in our daily lives. It's about understanding who I am in Christ on a regular basis. What does it mean on a daily basis? We actually hope in him. And even though it feels like everything around us is changing for the worse, our friends or our neighbors can see the hope that we have. And we're ready to explain it, that it's because we have a relationship with God through Jesus. It's not because I'm a super person. You know, um, a relationship with Jesus doesn't make you go super saiyan. Um, there's only a few of you that catch that. But um, the last aspect that we have here is that we see in this story Jesus exceeding all expectations is an unexpected miracle of salvation here. It says, as he was going up, or I'm sorry, as he was go going down, this is talking about the man, he's going back to Capernaum. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed, it says, and all his household, that this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Cana, the first one being turning the water into wine. Can you imagine the, the father's turmoil as he walked part of the 14 miles home the day that Jesus spoke to him? Then he would have spent the night along the way. This is why they met up with him the next day. They didn't walk through the night 
at that time. Um, He wakes up the next morning, gets back on the road as early as he can. There's no cell phone or phone booth for him or telegram for him to use to find out, did this actually happen? Is my son healed? I imagine that he's got to wonder if he's being a fool to think that Jesus can perform this amazing miracle to heal someone from 14 miles away, exceeding all expectations of that day, and to do it without any sign or struggle or incantation or religious activity. This was probably unheard of, that Jesus just was like, go, your son will live. So here he meets his servants along the way. And you have to wonder if he assumes that they're bringing him bad news. But no, they tell him that his son is recovering. He's made a major turn for the better. But actually, there's something missing here in our English, if you will. Now, I I moved forward here, but notice here, what the text says is Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And I just want to point out something here to you. Um, the, this statement by Jesus was actually pr- a present. He's saying your son is in a present continual state of living. And I'm not quite sure why all the English versions kind of translate this as Jesus said, your son will live. But there's something that John's getting across to us because he uses the same term, they. He is living. And John uses this to describe both when Jesus said to him, he, he says, your son is living And we translate it that Jesus said, your son will live. But also, when the men meet him, when the servants met him on the way, and, and in the English it says his son was recovering, but they use the same term. They, he is living. And I find some significance in the fact that the very terms that Jesus used, your son is living that that's the very same term that these servants use when they meet him on the road. Your son is living. And then John repeats it at the end of 53. Jesus had said to him, your son is living. We miss that somehow. He's in the present continual state of living. And we see that the, further, the father verifies with his servants that it takes place at the very moment that Jesus said it would. And at this point, it says that he trusts in Jesus as the God-man. At this point, it says, and he himself believed. In our New Testament Point being on this side of the death and resurrection of Christ. Colossians 1, 21 through 22 describes it in this way. And you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death 
in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. God has always been about saving those who are lost, blind enemies of God. That's what we all are before he touches touches us with his grace. And actually, this describes every person who's ever lived. Lost, blind enemies of God. Some of us are touched with his grace. And we read that salvation came to this whole man's house. You might ask, how is this possible? How is it possible for John to make this statement? That it came to his whole house. Uh, you might be thinking, is this an f- example of someone forcing their kids to receive Christ as their Savior? Um, but, you know, you can read about this happening again and again in the book of Acts, especially among Gentiles. The Philippian jailer and Cornelius, the Roman centurion, are two of these. Both of these are heads of the households, and they saw God do something amazing, and they believed in Christ as their Savior. And as a result of that head of the household, seeing God do something amazing in that way, it says, and their whole household believed. But guess what? The household still is needed to be told about the amazing thing that God had done. Um, Isaac Zoll is a friend of mine, and um, Isaac's dad, Pete, some uh, 20 years ago when Isaac was 13, um, had something, they had something amazing happen in their family. Uh, they were home on furlough from the mission field, and Pete had some medical problems. There was a tumor found on Pete's kidney that was positively cancer. But the Lord worked in the answer of prayer of over a thousand people around the world as they put word out to their supporters. And the diagnosis turned overnight from positively cancer to positively not cancer. Do you know what that family does every year on that date? the anniversary of that experience, they gather around as much of the family as they can along with the grandkids and they retell the story. That's how I think it happens that a person believes and their whole household. There's a testimony to God's goodness and grace combined with God's opening of the hearts of the whole family. and that's what as we receive God's grace ourselves this is how it can have an impact on a whole neighborhood this is how it can have an impact on a whole extended family this is what the gospel was meant to do It was meant to spread like wildfire. But it's not like this man got home and he found that coincidentally his family believed too, right? He got home and he shared it. He shared, son, do you know why you're healed? 
I met this man that must be God in the flesh because he told me at the very moment that you were healed that you would be. And that's part of what it looks like to just bring the gospel to those around us. Let's close in prayer. Father, um, we in our just natural state of mind